Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things MedEd in the PICU. PICU.com on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of an 18-month-old girl with a submersion event. Here's the case presented by Rahul. An 18-month-old female was admitted to the PICU following a drowning incident in a residential swimming pool. Found submerged, the toddler was unresponsive initially, but regained partial consciousness after her mother performed back blows. Upon arrival at the emergency department, she was lethargic, showing signs of respiratory distress, and her initial vital signs indicated tachycardia and hypoxemia. Her medical history was unremarkable, with no regular medications, and she was up to date on her immunizations. A chest x-ray in the emergency department showed diffuse bilateral infiltrates suggestive of pulmonary edema, and an ABG revealed hypoxemia and respiratory acidosis. Despite initial high-flow oxygen therapy, her condition worsened, necessitating intubation and mechanical ventilation. Lab studies were notable for a mild leukocytosis consistent with the stress response, electrolyte imbalances, including hyponatremia and hypokalemia, and all of this was noted to be due to potentially the drowning episode. Now we are in the PICU, and our ventilator settings were in PRVC, tidal volume of 6 milliliters per kilo, a respiratory rate of 25, fraction of inspired oxygen of 100%, a PEEP of 5, and despite her critical condition, she maintained a relatively stable hemodynamic status with normal vital signs for age. The PICU team now faces the challenge of managing her severe respiratory condition, electrolyte imbalances, and watching for potential neurological and systemic complications from the near-drowning event. So to summarize key elements from this case, we have severe acute respiratory failure following a submersion injury, and now the patient is on high ventilator settings. The patient has abnormal electrolytes, such as hyponatremia. And finally, patient has a neurological insult warranting ongoing monitoring. So our today's episode is focused on submersion injury in the PICU. It's a part of our summer injury PICU series. So we're going to organize the episode based on going through definitions relating to drowning. We'll talk about epidemiology, then pivot into pathophysiologic considerations. And then finally, we will go through some practical management points, both in the out-of-hospital setting as well as inpatient setting. So let's go ahead and start with the multiple choice question. So you're presented with a three-year-old boy admitted to the intensive care unit after a near-drowning incident in a neighbor's pool. Found unconscious and cyanotic at the scene, he receives poolside resuscitation, but eight hours after ICU admission, his respiratory distress worsens, leading to elective intubation and mechanical ventilation. What is the most likely explanation for this patient's acute pulmonary deterioration and dysfunction? A, bacterial infection from contaminated water. B, increased pulmonary capillary permeability. C, increased sympathetic nervous system activity. Or D, pulmonary edema from fluid overload. Rahul, this is an excellent question. The correct answer is B, increased 
pulmonary capillary permeability. In case of near drowning or submersion injury, the pathophysiology involves an inflammatory response that disrupts the alveolar capillary barrier, leading to increased permeability. This causes fluid to leak into the interstitial and alveolar spaces, manifesting as pulmonary edema, which is observed as bilateral whiteout on chest x-ray. That's a great explanation. And, you know, really to summarize and give you a take-home point here, increased capillary permeability is also implicated in the pathophysiology of acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. And we're going to go through this in a little bit more detail in our pathophysiology section. So Rahul, there's a lot of confusion in the terms that we use when we are faced with such injuries in the PICU. Now, we use uh, terms like near drowning, submersion injury. Can you highlight some important definition we need to consider before we go into the pathophysiology of this? Absolutely, Pradeep. So the terminology of drowning incidents has historically been pretty confusing. And uh, there are a variety of terms that are used interchangeably in the literature. A turning point came in 2002 when the World Congress on Drowning convened by the Dutch Organization to Rescue People from Drowning kind of consortium proposed a uniform definition. And they said that drowning, it's a, quote, process resulting in primary respiratory impairment from submersion or immersion in a liquid medium. So in essence, drowning occurs when a liquid air interface blocks the victim's airway, impeding their ability to breathe. Now, this clarified definition led to the recommendation of abandoning terms like near drowning and allowed for outcomes to be categorized according to survival or death, with survivals further classified based on neurological function. So in 2013, updates on the data to be used in drowning-related resuscitation events were provided by the second international Utstein style consensus. This was a similar consensus to the Dutch organization one, which initially convened in 2002. This evolving language around drowning, I think it's fundamental to not only us communicating information, but also advancing research and prevention efforts in this domain of drowning. I will tell you terms such as near drowning, dry drowning, etc. are frequently used still in the PICU, but I think we need to be a little bit more mindful of the name changes and the specific convention. Now, to summarize, the key here is to use a uniform definition of drowning. And again, drowning is a process resulting in primary respiratory impairment from submersion or immersion in a liquid medium. And using outdated terms, or pause one, two, three, and using outdated terms such as near drowning and categorizing outcomes based on survival and neurological function is what we should shift to. Rahul, that was excellent. So in a study published in Resuscitation in 2005, other terms were defined to describe drowning. And this will be very important as you develop your assessment for these patients. To begin with, we have primary versus secondary drowning. Primary refers to immediate incidents, while secondary drowning involves a delay often leading to death due to complications after initial recovery. Absolutely. And though we are trying to stay away from the terms wet and dry drowning, I do want to bring this distinction up for historical context. And just in case you come up as you are reading the literature surrounding pediatric drowning. So wet versus dry drowning, this is a distinction based on whether water is aspirated or not. Wet drowning indicates aspiration of fluid, 
while dry drowning involves little to no aspiration of the fluid, and it's usually due to laryngeal spasm or airway obstruction. Now, this distinction, again, has been falling out of favor, but is important and is uh, related to the pathophysiology, so to say. So drownings are also characterized by the type and temperature of the water involved. Warm water drownings occur in temperatures above 20 degrees centigrade, while cold water drownings are associated with temperatures below 20 degrees centigrade, or patient's core temperature is going to be very low, less than 32 upon emergency department arrival. This is where you're going to be thinking about cold water drownings. Now, we further classify incidents based on the nature of the water, so salt water versus fresh water, which describes the environment where the incident occurred. The incident can be intentional or non-intentional, indicating the cause. And the other distinction that you want to know is fatal or non-fatal, which describes the outcome. So in our patient, she had, just to kind of link all the terms together, primary, non-intentional, non-fatal drowning event in fresh water. So in summary, understanding proper use of these categories plays a crucial role. So we talked about dry versus wet. We talked about intentional versus non-intentional. And we talked about the temperature, cold, warm as well as fatal versus non-fatal. So Pradeep, if our history, physical, and diagnostic investigation led us to a drowning event as our diagnosis, what would be some key pathophysiologic considerations? That's a good question. And I think this is very important for those taking care of patients with submersion injury in the PICU. Now, the pathophysiology of drowning begins when the victim's airway is submerged, leading to a reflex laryngospasm initiated by the penetration of liquid into the oropharynx or larynx. So remember, this is a protective reflex. This is what the body is doing to prevent the water from actually entering the airway. Now, if hypoxia, hypercarbia, and acidosis become severe enough, this triggers the relaxation of the laryngospasm, allowing the liquid to flood the lungs. The subsequent damage to the pulmonary architecture includes surfactant washout, atelectasis, pulmonary edema, increased pulmonary vascular resistance, and ongoing intrapulmonary shunting, all of which drastically impair oxygen delivery to the tissues. The nature of the aspirated fluid, whether fresh water or salt water, also has distinct implications with fresh water known to destroy pulmonary surfactant and cause greater hypoxia, leading to poor prognosis than saltwater drownings. Now, contrary to initial beliefs that saltwater aspiration leads to pulmonary edema via osmotic effects and freshwater causes volume overload or hemodilution, our current understanding shows that really the type of water, whether it's saltwater or freshwater, Pradeep, is not of real clinical significance in drowning cases. In fact, one study showed that it takes a aspiration of more than 11 milliliters per kilo to cause changes in blood volume, and even more than that, about 20 milliliters per kilo for electrolyte alterations. However, the typical volume aspirated in drowning cases is, guess what, only three to four milliliters per kilo, so significantly less than the ones that would cause volume overload or electrolyte alterations. And so that's why we really want to go through the electrolyte and volume overload considerations that they may not just be too fresh or salt water. So our patient was a little bit hypotensive, Pradeep, on initial presentation. Do you mind just expanding as to why this may have occurred? Yeah. 
the hypotension that's observed in our patient can be largely attributed to two mechanisms. The first is called cold diuresis. When a patient is exposed to cold, the body initially responds by moving blood to the core to preserve heat, which can lead to the body sensing an increased volume status. This in turn results in decreased production of uh, antidiuretic hormone or ADH, causing diuresis and subsequent dehydration leading to hypotension. Secondly, there's the phenomena known as afterdrop. This is a drop in blood pressure that happens as the extremities are warmed and peripheral vasoconstriction reverses. The increased blood return from the peripheral circulation can overwhelm the heart and result in a drop in blood pressure, compounding the hypotensive effect from the cold diuresis. This warming can lead to a further drop in core body temperature, hence the term afterdrop. Understanding these mechanisms are critical for managing hypotension in these patients effectively. That's great, Pradeep. So we're going to close our pathophysiology section by really diving deep into the pulmonary complications of drowning in pediatric patients. I think understanding the lung pathophysiology and drowning victims is absolutely crucial so that we can optimize their care. So we're going to delve into three mechanisms that occur after a drowning incident. So the first mechanism is the compromised oxygen uptake and the compromised carbon dioxide elimination due to a decrease in functional residual capacity. The second is going to be the distinct microbiological considerations. And then the third are going to be the consequent alterations in pulmonary mechanics that necessitate specific management strategies. So I'm going to give you three conceptual questions here. Number one, we're going to talk about how does drowning affect our gas exchange? Number two, how does drowning lead to potential infectious considerations? And number three, how does drowning affect cardiopulmonary interactions? And how does that modulate our management? During drowning, there's a decrease in functional residual capacity, leading to impaired oxygen uptake and CO2 elimination. This results in severe hypoxia and hypercarbia. Even minor aspiration, such as as little as 1 to 3 cc's per kilo body weight, can significantly disrupt gas exchange in a patient with drowning. Absolutely, Pradeep. And to kind of bring this concept home, I want to add, you can think of drowning kind of like a, a lung that is wet like a heavy sponge, right? And these changes in the lungs can lead to decreased lung compliance, necessitating higher inflation pressures and PEEP to maintain oxygenation. So lower tidal volumes and adjusted inspiratory times can help us manage this abnormality in compliance. And this is also seen when we talk about acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. Aspiration during drowning, especially of contaminated water, can lead to bacterial pneumonia with both aerobic gram-negative, and gram-positive bacteria being involved. In addition, the chemical composition and temperature of water can influence bacterial growth, potentially leading to complications such as multidrug-resistant bacteria and fungal pneumonia. And we see this a lot in patients who have drowned in uh, sewage waters, uh, and we get these patients sometimes in the ICU. We start them on antifungal and antibiotics right away. Awesome, Pradeep. I'm really glad that we were able to go through the pathophysiology in depth because we're going to conclude our episode focusing on management. So as an experienced clinician, Pradeep, do you mind kind of 
providing your framework? How do you approach drowning in the PICU? So in managing patients with drowning, aggressive, basic, and advanced life support should be initiated right from the beginning. From the accident site through to the emergency department is vital. Primarily focusing on swift and effective control of hypoxia and acidosis. The immediacy and effectiveness of on-site CPR is often the hallmark of survival, with bystander involvement greatly enhancing the chances of a favorable neurological outcome. Initiating immediate resuscitation is critical, irrespective of the estimated submersion duration, given the challenges of accurate timing in such high-stress situations. Absolutely. So it seems like the outside hospital resuscitation is crucial in these patients who have suffered drowning injuries. In fact, you know, a study involving over 900 drowning victims revealed that bystander-administrated CPR significantly increased the chances of neurologically favorable survival. The immediate response, even before healthcare professionals arrive, can make a dramatic difference in the patient's outcome. So Rahul, what about if the patient is in the PICU? What are some of the key management principles we need to keep in mind? All right. So we talked about the out-of-hospital. Let's go into inpatient management. Here are the most common therapies you're going to see in these patients. Majority of these patients may be intubated or mechanically ventilated, especially if they have impaired neurological status or respiratory failure. Now, similar to acute lung injury or ARDS, you want to think about low tidal volume, low plateau pressures, and high PEEP, especially if there's going to be issues with the oxygenation. One caveat may be in the setting of presumed anoxic brain injury or cerebral edema. You may not, in this situation, want to tolerate permissive hypercapnia. And so, again, it's this Goldilocks balance with your CO2 goals, oxygenation, as well as your compliance of the lung. Rahul, what about steroids, surfactant, and antibiotics? This has been a topic of debate in the literature, but here's the short and skinny of things. Steroids, no real evidence for their use. Surfactant, though it seems biologically plausible, remember we talked about in the pathophysiology surfactant washout, there's no real evidence for its efficacy. And then finally, prophylactic antibiotics, they're not really recommended unless you think about grossly contaminated like sewage water, or uh, maybe they drowned in a marsh, then you really want to consider uh, giving antibiotics or antifungals. All right, Pradeep, what about other considerations that you would think about in these patients? I think, uh, first of all, we need to think about uh, seizure prophylaxis. If using uh, any, we should uh, basically use uh, uh, Keppra to avoid uh, sedative effects and to avoid uh, vasospasm. Now, sometimes what we have seen in very severe drownings is you, you get generalized myoclonus, which has to be separated from seizures. So a continuous EEG uh, would be very helpful to kind of distinguish between uh, seizures and this generalized myoclonus, which happens from post-ischemic uh, reperfusion injury, because the treatment for that is completely different. The other thing to think about is uh, sometimes these patients may need a neuromuscular blockade. If, uh, especially for bad respiratory failure, uh, we may need this, especially if patient is going to need a high frequency oscillation. Uh, we may need a short term neuromuscular blockade. And we should also have things to do a neurological exam. And we may also need continuous EEG in this instance because we are going to lose our neurological exam once we neuromuscularly blockade these patients. 
as far as extracorporeal life support goes, there is no definitive evidence, although it has been used many times to support patients uh, with a refractory cardiopulmonary failure due to drowning. Overall, 51% survival uh, based on ELSO registry review of about 246 patients. So Rahul, as we loop back into our case, what are the key prognostic factors we can look at? Absolutely, Pradeep. I think neurological function is one of the key exam components that you want to monitor in these patients. Uh, some of the key prognostic factors that are also tested on the PEDS critical care boards is number one, duration of submersion. So greater than five minutes, that is a poor prognostic factor. Time to effective basic life support, it is, if it is delayed more than 10 minutes, especially at the scene, you're thinking about poor prognosis. If the resuscitation is greater than 25 minutes, that's another point for poor prognosis. Patients who are going to be on extremes of age, either adolescents or very, very young patients, if their initial GCS is low, less than five, if they have persistent apnea or a requirement of CPR within the emergency department, if their initial pH is less than 7.1, and if after 24 hours they're in the PICU and there's no purposeful movement, these are all poor prognostic factors. But the key take-home here is going to be what's your out-of-hospital resuscitation and what's your current neurological exam. So let's go ahead and summarize our episode today. Number one, effective on-site CPR, that's pivotal to improve survival rates and neurological outcomes. Number two, in the PICU, drowning management should include swift control of hypoxemia and acidosis, really making sure that you are going to pay careful attention to the ventilator setting, balancing the CO2 goals. Remember that antibiotics, steroids, surfactant, they haven't really shown too much evidence. Third, we want to make sure we reassess the neurological assessment in these patients and consider factors such as submersion time, the resuscitation duration, age, initial GCS, and the persistence of apnea. And then finally, we are pediatricians first. And I think we want to really have a take-home point today of prevention. One of the key management or prevention points that I want to make here is fencing around the pool has been shown to prevent severe drowning. Teaching children to swim, empowering them, especially early on, enrolling them in swim classes or taking that time to teach them how to swim is another preventatory recommendation. And then really making sure you have eyes on the child, never leaving a child unattended around water, whether it's at the pool or at home in the tub. I think making sure that we go down the route of prevention is so important. Thank you, Rahul. That was awesome. This concludes our episode on pediatric drowning. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback subscribe and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kumar, and my awesome co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.